the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and our minds, that we might receive your Holy Word. Lord, anoint my lips that I might speak it faithfully, that we all might see Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to imagine yourself this scene. You're a Jew in Rome. It's 55 AD in the first century. You've just returned to rebuild after your business was destroyed because Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from Rome for the past few years. And you've returned and set up shop there close to the forum where you engage in business. You try to be a good Jew, but you're tired out. You've recently begun attending secret meetings of the, a new people who call themselves followers of Jesus. They follow the rabbi's teachings. Maybe you'll do better under this new administration in Rome, you think. Maybe Nero will bring peace. Certainly he has to be better than Claudius, right? One thing is certain, there's going to be upheaval. And then, as you're attending one of these secret meetings, you get there and there's this letter written, this part of the recollection of the gospel. You hear that it's from Peter and Mark working together on a new book, and it begins the beginning of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have to be thinking to yourself, wait, the gospel? The Lord Jesus Christ? The Son of God? Those are all terms that are used by the emperor. Those are all terms that you would have just heard coming from Nero. The gospel? The good news? The good news, well, the good news is that there's a new ruler, but that ruler is not Nero, it's this Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus fellow. 
the Messiah, the anointed one? Well, that's a term used of kings and prophets. What does, what does that have to do with this good news? And son of God, well, Caesar uses that terminology too. Son of the divine? What's going on? You're intrigued. What is this Jesus fellow who claims both Jewish authority and dominion? The reader continues, and you recall from your lessons early in life, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What does this mean? What if this is true? Is it too good to be true? Can it truly be that my disordered life is going to be restored? What are the implications of this Jesus fellow, this person that claims to be more than a rabbi? Do you see all that is just in those first few lines of Mark's gospel that you and I just kind of buzz over as 21st century Christians? Do you see all the questions that that would have elicited in the mind of someone in the first century? It's easy for us to rush past Advent, isn't it? It's easy for us to rush past who Jesus claims to be because we know it all, we've heard it all before, and it's not good news to us because it doesn't seem to have the freshness and the newness. But friends, that's a trap. Don't be tricked. As we prayed today in the Collect of the Day, Scripture is meant to be read, learned, inwardly digested, meditated upon as something that brings life and light into our dark lives. Don't take it for granted. Look with fresh eyes at what we're told. Do you remember last week I told you that this Advent season we're going to be going through three different arrivals of the king? The first being the arrival of the king at the end of all time. And that's what we talked about last week, right? Talking about Jesus coming at the end of time. This week, as you recall, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus being the coming of Jesus the King in each of our hearts individually through the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I, friends, are part of an eternal plan, you see. That plan began way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when it was prophesied, he shall crush your head, meaning the devil. God's Old Testament people and prophets waited for years just to catch a glimpse of Jesus, just to hear how God was going to fulfill this promise. And the story remains unchanged for us today, except that we have seen him and met him face to face. But that longing should be just as much as it's been for the prophets. That longing in our hearts should be just as much as the Old Testament people longed for deliverance. For apart from God, we can do nothing good. And as the old prayer book says, there is no health in us. Isaiah chapter 40, 
verse 1 tells the story of God's waiting. You know what's going on in Isaiah. The exile is happening. And the wilderness is being forced upon God's people because destruction has come to his people. And look at what God says to the prophet Isaiah. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort. Comfort my people who are in the wilderness. What has your wilderness looked like in the past? Depression? Disease? Drugs? Alcohol? A broken heart? Broken relationships? Broken image? There's so many things that bring a wilderness and a desert to us. And it's not so dramatic sometimes, but sometimes we can feel that we're in a dry place, in a barren place, that we're stuck in the wilderness. That's what Isaiah's speaking into here. You see, Isaiah's speaking into history to comfort God's people in a very specific context, and yet the word of God remains true today to us, to those outside looking for God. In the gospel reading today, we see the voice of John the Baptist, comfort, comfort ye my people, we sang. And what does John say that comfort is? It's a rather interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Mark chapter 1, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance? How is that good news? How is that comfort? You mean I have to stop doing what I've been doing and turn around? Because that's what repentance means? Well, yes. Yes, you do. If you're not following God. But it's good news because God's made a way for you to stop what you're doing and turn around. Who was the voice that brought you this good news? Think about it for a moment. Who was the voice that brought you this good news? The good news about God and repentance. Was it your parents? Was it your grandparents? Was it somebody outside of your family? Was it someone from church? Was it a friend? Who was the forerunner for you to bring repentance? Notice the good news brought is hard news, repentance, confessing sin. But what's the good news? That there is forgiveness, that there's hope, that there's a way out of the desert. Why this good news? Why is it needed? Well, I don't think we have to look too far. That relationship that just can't be fixed with God, that relationship that just can't be fixed with other people, that bad habit we can't get rid of, the pain that just won't go away, the disease that there's no answer for, our mortality. For most of us, no matter what, we cannot break out of those things ourselves, and we throw ourselves on God's mercy. But 
what underlies all of sinfulness in this world and all of the sins that we commit is actually a deeper sin. Pastor Tim Keller, a Presbyterian minister, says, the sin beneath all sins is a lack of joy in God. The sin beneath all sins is a lack of joy in God. What does that mean? Well, it means that instead of turning to God in joy, we turn to just about everything else. And we get ourselves wrapped up in everything else. You can look at that. That's easy to see in the sins of the flesh, right? It's harder to see in the sins of the spirit. But we take things and we stick them in the place of God and we put our hopes on them and we think that they're somehow going to give us relief. And then they don't and we fall into despair. So do you see the cycle just continues outside of the joy of God? The awful truth is, friends, that without God's divine intervention, we can't even see clearly our sin, let alone do anything about it. C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He says, when a man's getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows that he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you're awake, not while you're sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. While you're, make, while you're making them, you cannot see them. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you're sober, not when you're drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. So do you see it's God's intervention that even brings us knowledge of what is good and what's bad and what we're doing that's sinful. So the comfort is an intervention. Comfort, comfort, my people, is God intervening and saying something's not right here and needs to be put right. You need to turn back to me. When John the Baptist, with all of his um, camel hair and uh, his accompanying uh, roughness of speech, talking about brood of vipers and whatnot, what John the Baptist is doing is calling our attention back to the fact that we, outside of God, can't do it. And we need that message again and again, even as Christians. Isaiah tells us in, in verse 9 of the, of the uh, first reading today, Behold your God, to look at God. And we read in response in Psalm 85, 8, I will listen to what the, Lord's in, the Lord is saying. And what's he saying? He's saying peace. But that peace is not an easy peace. It's a hard one peace of Jesus. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus to bring forgiveness, freedom from darkness, and real peace. But what does God's comfort look like practically for us? Verse 4. Turn with me to verse 4 of Mark's gospel. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Well, there's a direct tie back to verse 4 in Isaiah. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What does God's peace look like? What does God's comfort look like? Leveling. Raising. Shaking. It's a leveling, a raising, and a shaking that upsets the apple cart. If you're looking for God's peace and comfort, don't think that it's going to look like the peace and comfort of this world. Jesus says as much. And don't think that in your life as a Christian, God's peace and comfort during Advent is going to look like what you think it should look like. The answer to what you want, because that's not what Scripture says. For example, there's no more room for pride that you indulge in, or ungodly belief or behavior that you consider so dear. That is flattened, it's leveled. There's no more room for self-pity or self-destructive behavior that's brought you so low. That is expelled. That is cast off. That's what God's peace and comfort looks like. Because, as St. Paul writes to the, second, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are therefore a new creation, The old has passed away and the new has come, but the reality of it is that that transformation is painful. It's a realignment. It's a change of attitude. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Look at verse 6. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You see, the most beautiful part of our salvation is that it doesn't rest on us. And these verses remind us of that. It puts things into perspective in the season of Advent that the beauty of the flesh, the beauty of what we see in our world and in ourselves is always passing away. That life itself, if we look at ourselves, is always passing away. But notice what remains forever. The word of God remains forever. You and I might be fickle in our faith. We might be unfaithful in our obedience to God. And yet the good news is that God has been faithful to us despite that that his word doesn't change, that in a world of changing values, in a world of quicksand, we have a rock in God's word. Salvation belongs to our God. We can't make it happen. And that's good news. Because the good news is that it's a gift from start to finish. So, how do we welcome Christ into our hearts this Advent? How do we act on that second welcoming? Well, number one, I say, expect upheaval. If you're not expecting upheaval in your life, you're probably not being obedient to God because he's always changing us. There's a story of a priest 
during World War II. His name was Father Alfred Delp. He was a Jesuit priest. And he never expected to be where he was in 1944. He found himself being tried in front of the People's Court in Berlin. As a priest, he was considered an enemy of the state because he believed in a different order of things and was arrested along with the likes of Moltke and a resistance group called the Cressaw Circle. He writes this during the season of Advent, and I think it bears the reading to you. The Advent message comes out of an encounter of man with the absolute, the gospel. It is thus the message that shakes, so that the end of the world will be shaken. It's also a decree that God's coming and will be shaking up humanity is somehow connected. Being shattered, being awakened, only with these is life made capable of Advent. In the bitterness of awakening, in the helplessness of coming to, in the wretchedness of realizing our limitations, the golden threads that pass between heaven and earth in these times reach us. Father Gelp understood upheaval. Take comfort in the discomfort. And most of all, trust in God, who, unlike us and our culture and our values and our own human fickleness, never changes, but is faithful to save. Lastly, be the John the Baptist to those around you. How can you share this message of light? How can you share the good news of Jesus? Maybe it was handing out hot chocolate. Maybe it was reminding the culture of St. Nicholas. Maybe it was having that hard discussion with your family, with those that you love. Maybe it's inviting someone to come to church with you. Maybe it's taking the time to explain what Christmas is to people that are all about Christmas but don't know the core of the message. Just like that Jew in 55 AD reading this good news for the first time, so I invite you, read this news as if it were for the first time. That Jesus has come for you. That Jesus has come to be in your heart. That Jesus has come to change you and he's come to change you so you could help others. As Father Delp wrote, the Advent message comes out of an encounter of man with the absolute, the final, the gospel. It's a message that shakes so that in the end of the world, we will not be shaken. Amen.